Tell me how you got your children into school. To get the boys in the schools that I wanted them to go to, you had to camp outside. There were hundreds of people trying to get their kids in hundreds of schools. We stayed in line Friday night, what? Saturday night, Seriously? Sunday, oh and my. here. Wait, you, you camped out for three days? For three days. What would you do to get your child into a great school? I asked stuff in my car for three days. So you switched off standing in line while one <laughs> other correct. person went and slept in the car? That's why. Oh That's my why. God. That's how I got them in school. We had to do a K. You do it K through. You camp out K through five. Okay. Then you had to camp out again for middle school six through eight. And I did not have to camp. For a huge number of American families, the days of sending their kids down the street to the neighborhood school are long gone. More than 50% of American parents have what's called school choice. This includes open enrollment, magnet schools, charter schools, online schools, homeschooling, and in a few places, vouchers that pay for private school tuition. But for Carla Christian, a seriously education-focused mother based in Atlanta, getting her sons into the school she wanted involved standing in a three-day, 24-hour line. In most cities, choosing a school doesn't make people camp out like they're waiting to buy the latest iPhone. Though recently, I read about one dad in Cincinnati who camped out for 16 days in December to get his son into kindergarten. But even for parents who aren't braving Midwestern winters, choosing a school is still one of the weirdest and most challenging experiences of modern American parenting. I feel a little bit like I'm shopping for a new car. Um... And I didn't know I needed a new car. I'm Carol Lloyd, and this is Like a Sponge, the podcast for parents about the science of how kids learn. Today, it may seem like we're veering off course. What does choosing a school have to do with the science of learning? Well, the research suggests that the school your child goes to will have a huge effect on your child's brain development. Now that parents have more choices than ever, what does choosing an elementary school look like in a real city with real parents. Carrie Feibel and Eric Kane live in Oakland, California. Their five-year-old daughter will be starting kindergarten next year. They're united in their commitment to finding a good fit for their daughter, but their distinctly different childhoods color how they think about schools. I was super blessed. I lived in an affluent suburb outside of St. Louis. Um, I, I came out of there with a love of learning. Mm-hmm whether that was from my family or the school. My older sister went there, so by the time she was in third grade, I was in kindergarten, she walked me to school. I mean, it was like in a storybook. Carrie ended up graduating with good enough scores and grades to land a spot in an Ivy League university. Eric's memories of school growing up in San Antonio, Texas, bear little resemblance to his wife's fairy tale education. I'd spend a lot of time staring out the window as, as, a, as a kid, just, you know, bored to tears. Um, I was a class clown. I got in a lot of trouble. Uh, you know, I was really good at uh, taking conversations off the rails during class. And when he imagines his daughter in kindergarten next year, he wonders if she may have similar talents. My daughter's not a carbon copy of me, but I see some traits where I'll ask her about something, and if it wasn't completely engaging for her, she's like, oh, I don't remember. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, oh, I'm kind of the same way. Like, if it's not interesting, it's just, I'm not even think. I'm not even there right. when it's going on. I'm thinking about something else. 
Therein lies the rub. If it was about objective measures for all kids, it might be a bit easier to figure out which schools were the best. But like all parents, Eric and Carrie want to choose a school that's also a good fit for their particular child. So what do you want to do when you go to kindergarten? What are the fun things you want to do? Go to recess. Anything else? Just recess. Recess all day long? Well, I just want, I wish I could have recess all day long. What would you do at recess if you did it all day long? Play. The idea that parents need more agency in their children's education is based on strong research. Number one, parents are the single greatest influence on their children. And two, kids who get to attend great schools reap all sorts of benefits. But putting parents in the driver's seat is a relatively new idea. Magnet schools started in the early 1970s to get middle-class families to stick with the public school system. Then came open enrollment in Minnesota in 1988, where parents could choose any school in their district. Then came vouchers in Milwaukee in 1989, and then charter schools in 1991. Since then, school choice has been spreading all across the nation. For Carrie and Eric, who are looking at public schools in Oakland, the choices are daunting. First, there's the system. The district has open enrollment with neighborhood preference, which means that parents can request up to six of the 59 public elementary schools and sign up for any of the charter schools. But they get special preference for their neighborhood school. In the case of the most desirable schools, there's no guarantee that even neighborhood kids will get in. All this creates a dizzying sense of abundance and scarcity at the same time. All right, you've been to Montclair, you've been to Glenview, and you've been to Chabot and Cleveland. Mm -hmm. And I've also been to Joaquin Miller, Sequoia, mm -hmm. Peralta, Redwood Heights, yeah. Kaiser. You've been to Kaiser. I mean, they're all, they all kind of blend together. I mean, the, uh, We meet phone. Carrie and Eric at Cleveland Elementary, a school perched on a hillside neighborhood above Lake Merritt. Based on the test scores, Cleveland stands out. Unlike a lot of diverse schools, there isn't a big achievement gap between low-income and non-low-income kids. Kids of all different socioeconomic backgrounds are doing well academically here. Standing in front of a group of 30-odd parents in the cafeteria at 9 a.m., the principal emphasizes this focus on equity. Uh, we've been recognized statewide as one of the schools with the smallest what's called achievement gap. It's still looks big to me, but it does show that we're at least going on the right direction. To As we are marched through kindergarten classes in small groups, Eric and Carrie are a formidable team. Each peeks into as many classrooms as possible to observe the teachers in action. Then they report back to one another. We get to see inside classrooms for no more than a minute or so. Like spies, Carrie and Eric also peek into a first grade class. The tour spends the most time on the eco-literacy program, which looks a lot like a school garden. Adorable, well-spoken students from the older grades proudly show off the fruits of their learning. This is our orchard garden. It has, um, it has three apple trees, two lemon trees, one orange tree, one fig tree, one more red tree. I'm aware of how remarkable it is that Cleveland is able to help all students become proficient in math and reading. So I'm ready to be impressed. But what's going on in the kindergarten classroom looks pretty old school. 
teachers are standing in front of big groups presenting letter blends and simple math problems, and kids are sitting on the ground crisscross applesauce. Some students are more interested in the visitors than the lesson, and one teacher raises her voice to lasso wandering attention spans. Is it the back-to-basics book learning that's the school's secret to success? Or is it the three apple trees? By the end of the tour, Carrie seems cautiously optimistic. But Eric spotted a broken window pane in the tiny locked-up greenhouse. You know, the devil's in the details, right? If you're going to have a greenhouse on a tour, it's got missing panels. You know, greenhouses don't work, but there's missing panels. They've been in school for two months. How long does it take to go to Home Depot, get some plexiglass, and glue it on? You know, the hose down there is not coiled up. There's dust on some of the windowsills in the kindergarten room. I mean, of course, Maybe you know, they don't have it, the budget to fix the greenhouse. Right. Well, I'm not talking about gloss. I'm just talking about function, you know, function, you know, maintenance. It's like if I'm noticing these things, you know, what else is there that I'm, that I'm not seeing? You know, uh, but is that why we're sending Joni to school that the, there's no dust on the windows? Here? No, but it, I mean, it's it, you know what is it, you know, and I don't have the answer to this, but you know what what is that? Indicative? Eric is looking at the school like it's a restaurant. If there's a painting that's weirdly askew in the dining room, what else is being neglected back in the kitchen? This is, in fact, one of the hopes of school choice proponents that a market economy for schools will create informed consumers that demand higher quality. But Carrie doesn't seem as sure she can judge a school's quality from the visible details. Public schools struggle to teach, support, and often feed hundreds of students on limited budgets. Besides, aren't the ingredients of a good education more elusive than those of a good meal? After the tour, Eric asks the principal about the greenhouse window. Not a priority, the principal says. It's not the answer Eric was hoping for. Hello, come on in. All right, I think we're all here. How many of you came to our open house night, our kindergarten night? So a few of you. Um, and in the coming weeks, Carrie and Eric will visit nine public schools and three charter schools. They'll hear about parental involvement. Yeah, we have Dad's Club here. They run movie nights. Programs for social-emotional learning. There's 12 tools, um, ranging from personal space to empathy, apology, forgiveness, using your words, breathing. PTAs that raise lots of money. We have a budget of about 300, a little more than 300,000. And homemade muffins. We'll get to those later. Most of the tours treat these parents as if they're choosing a school for their five-year-old, not a home of six years that sherpas their tiny humans all the way through childhood to the very precipice of adolescence and algebra. Carrie and Eric want to see older grades in action, but few schools incorporate it into the initial tour. Yes. So for, to see older grades, we have to come back. come back and check in with the office. office. Yeah. <laughs> do, do tours just usually never go to look at the older grades? Is that typically? These are typically <laughs> just for kindergarten. Yeah, it's to introduce the incoming families yeah. to kindergarten. And some seem to dismiss this concept altogether. And then the Joaquin Miller principal said, we have a policy that parents can't observe in higher grades. Interesting. So, not, 
And that's, I was not happy with that's that. Not, that's Carrie had visited about a half a dozen schools when we catch up after a tour of Peralta Elementary in North Oakland. It's now one of those it schools that turned around and now has good juju, good test scores. But if you don't live in the neighborhood, the chances of getting a kindergarten seat are slim. Carrie has been approaching her search with the zeal of an investigative journalist. But today, she looks a little weary. So how are you feeling about the whole process at this point? I feel like I still have to do more research. So um, what about just like emotionally? Are you like excited about your daughter going to kindergarten? Or are you just no, like in... No, I'm not like, excited. Okay. Um, emotionally, I'm, um, you know, it, it's... This is actually worse than when I dropped her at daycare mm. at four months. Like right now, it's stressful. It's not... The, the process is not, not stressful. Mm. It's sad that there are not more resources for all schools. You know, even supposedly great schools are not getting, you know, enrichment unless the parents step up and pay for it. And it makes me upset and it makes me want to honestly, like, go to the Oakland school board meetings. Carrie and Eric are doing exactly what the system expects them to do. Spend time and energy looking for the right school for their daughter. But it's easier said than done. You can look at a school's numbers, like test scores and growth scores, which measure how much students progress from year to year. But the data doesn't tell you the whole story. Sometimes the numbers look great, and then the tour raises concerns. And sometimes the opposite happens. In a beautiful Nordic-style auditorium, a woman in flowing clothing greets us at the door. She explains that since sharing food is part of this charter school's philosophy, she's made muffins and coffee to share with the parents. One of the founding parents presents a slideshow and speaks with such persuasive clarity about the school's commitment to Maria Montessori's vision of personalized learning and child-centered pedagogy that I'm almost moved to tears. Muffins and intrinsic motivation. We wander unchaperoned through all the grades of the classrooms with two teachers in every class and lots of kids doing self-guided projects, not a worksheet in sight. Carrie and Eric, whose daughter is already thriving at a Montessori-based preschool, seem similarly moved. You know, what I know of my own personality and, you know, what I read in my daughter's personality. I just think it's a really good model for her. Yeah. Definitely going to go into the lottery for this. Kids were free to move about the classroom. One mm. kid was lying on his back reading a book. There were some kids mm. in a book corner. The teacher was one-on-one with someone. That just made, that made sense to me. I mean, But then I look at great schools' profile. Do you have concerns that this school has uh, pretty much low test scores? Does it? You know... I'd had to I'd had to look into it. I mean, there was a long period of time where I had low test scores. Right. I'm not dumb. I have two degrees. Yeah. I mean, I'd rather Joni be, you know, a whole a holistically learned person mm-hmm. than, you know, in an, in a good environment than yeah. an awesome test taker. Yeah. Right. I mean, do you want do you want an environment that you think is good for your kid, or you know, are you so concerned about test scores that you send your kid to that school? Uh, dis- despite everything else. Just what do those test scores really tell you? 
So maybe the low test scores are because the school doesn't teach to the test. Maria Montessori's method is famous for introducing complex math in early grades, but her methods use blocks, beads, and what are known as manipulatives. It's not traditional math as it's assessed on standardized Common Core tests. And there's some research that suggests kids educated in K-8 Montessori end up outperforming other kids in high school math. But this school's data raises questions. The school's low-income students get the lowest rating in the state, a 1 out of 10, compared to a 6 out of 10 for non-low-income students. The academic progress score of 7 suggests students are learning year over year but only 6% of low-income kids are proficient in math. And for some groups of kids, it's worse yet. Fewer than 1% of African-American students at the school are proficient in math, compared to 54% of the white students. This is a big disparity. And for many parents in Oakland, gaping disparities like this aren't just numbers. They tell a story, a story about their own child's chances of getting into a school where kids like them are succeeding. Lakeisha Young is a mother of three who has been navigating the Oakland school system for over a decade. What was your experience looking for your daughter's elementary school in Oakland? When it was time for my daughter to transition to kindergarten, at the time, the district had identified schools that were low-performing and struggling, and then they gave them about like four years to turn around. Our neighborhood school Um, was a program improvement school, but it was in year three of that process. You had a lot of reason to worry that that school wasn't even maybe going to exist. Right. If that school did not improve within those four years, the district would close that school. And so we looked at schools and, you know, the funny thing is, you know, my daughter was five then, she's 15 now, the same schools that were in demand and desirable were, were in demand and desirable then. And so some of those schools were like Glenview Elementary and Sequoia and Montclair. All the schools in the hills. Schools in the hills, yes. And so we would go to the tours, to open houses. And we really felt like, hey, as parents, if we show up, you know, build relationships and, and like learn more, somehow it inches us closer, right, to getting the choice that we want. We went to fairs, you know. You were really doing your homework. Right? Her dad and I just felt like we have to keep navigating her through this process in a way where she has access to, to good school options so that she could go to college. So, yeah, that's what we did. We did it all, and then we turned in our options um for, we turned that in and we like, you know, I think we took a deep breath. And I think we just felt optimistic as first time parents navigating the system that like something, one of those options were going to pan out for us. Right. And so then we waited. And then, you know, around March, we got a letter from the district saying that she was going to be placed in that in our neighborhood school. That very school that was maybe on the verge of closing. Yes. I actually remember like standing in the elevator of our apartment building and like sort of I've got the envelope in my hand along with other mail and I'm, you know, I'm opening that first and I swear I thought I was going to pass out. I mean, it was just the absolutely most paralyzing fear. Like I just felt helpless and powerless. Right. And I felt like my options were dwindling right in front of my eyes. She appealed the district's decision, but... So when we appealed, 
um, we were placed back in our neighborhood school. <laughs> Do you have a sense of um, how unusual your experience was? My experience is not unusual at all. And it, it impacts a lot of parents. It, it probably impacts like all parents who don't live directly in the neighborhoods of the schools that they want their kids to attend. So tell me, what does this mean for, um, you know, the state of public schools for neighborhoods that are not in the hills? What are the state of those public schools? They're, they're persistently low performing. You have schools where one percent of children on grade level in math and zero percent in ELA or six percent or 11 percent. Like it's it's not it's very common to see a lot of these schools at the below the 20 percent mark in terms of um, proficiency in ELA and math. Lakeisha put her daughter's name in a lottery for a local charter school. She got lucky. Her daughter got in. But her first experience with school choice made an impression on her. It's been 10 years since Lakeisha stood in that elevator feeling paralyzed by fear. Since then, she's become an advocate for Oakland parents whose children face the same odds when looking for a school where kids like theirs succeed. As executive director of Oakland Reach, a grassroots group that trains Oakland parents to fight for better schools, Lakeisha teaches parents how to read data and how to use it to identify schools where kids are succeeding. She also wants to help parents find their voice when none of the choices are good. Yes, we have choices, but our biggest issue is access to those choices. And even for parents who manage to get their child into a high-performing school, the fight for a good education is far from over. My daughter attends the highest-performing high school, district high school, in Oakland, right? And if you look on the surface of that school, and let's just, let's use great schools data, right? That school's a seven out of 10. In Oakland, that's kind of a, that's a home run right now. But what you need to look at is that tab that says equity overview, right? And when you click on that tab, you see that white and Asian kids are an eight or nine out of 10 in terms of their academic performance, and Black and Latino kids are 2 and 4 out of 10. Translation. Averages can be deceiving. The majority of the Black and Latino students at her daughter's high school are not considered proficient. You've got to understand how do Black and brown kids perform at these schools, low-income kids, English language learners. What is their experience? Because if their experience makes it so that the schools are 8 out of 10, but low-income kids are performing at a 4 out of 10, or Black students are performing at a 4 out of 10, you've got to stay awake. And you've got to stay an advocate. Data can help expose the problem of access to high-quality schools. But the numbers don't tell you everything. You want your child to feel they belong, especially when you know how it feels when you don't. My dad came from Mexico with this idea, like, I'm going to work my tail off and put, put my kids in great schools and blah, blah, blah. But it's a double-edged sword. Jennifer Lira Ruiz grew up in a working-class immigrant family. And because her parents wanted the best for her, they put their children in what was considered one of the best school districts in California. Super affluent, not super diverse, Danville in Contra Costa County. You work so much and you're thinking you're putting your kids in these affluent, like great schools, but with that money and with not necessarily being around that much, there's 
problems that happen. Problems like bullying. Problems like feeling like an outsider. Problems Jennifer doesn't want her four-year-old son, Arlo, ever to experience. When she and her husband started their elementary school search, they knew what they were looking for. A school in their community where Arlo could build on what he's been learning in his Spanish dual immersion preschool. That was a priority to us. We wanted to keep that going. They heard about a school near their East Oakland home that offers Spanish immersion. They liked what they saw. On the tour, it really seemed like the people enjoyed being there. A lot of the teachers or the people who work there send their kids there. So that said a lot to me too. I feel like that's, that's what's exciting about being able to feel good about supporting a neighborhood school that is not a freaking expensive, like it's, it's lower to middle Income. Jennifer knows this will mean no huge PTA fundraising machines bringing in hundreds of thousands of dollars a year and kids whose families are struggling financially and need extra support to learn English. But this is her community, her neighborhood, and she wants her family to be a part of it. The mm-hmm. fact that my, me and my husband and my, my dad, like, we have the time to be present to mm-hmm. be there and then I can mm-hmm. be a part of the community even more so and right. and you know there's there's so I just I'm very excited about that it had been a couple of days since Carrie and Eric got their letters from the district and the charter enrollment offices so much had gone into searching for a school and what was number one and two that you so the schools I ranked were it was Montclair Crocker, which was just a reach, um, Glenview, and then below that it was, I think, Sequoia, Kaiser, Chabot, I mean, just to fill it up. In the end, they put their neighborhood school as their third choice after a couple of higher-performing schools. Cleveland didn't make the cut. Carrie and Eric experienced modern-day school choice with its messiness and its promise. They didn't get their first choice, or their second. Like Lakeisha, they ended up getting their neighborhood school. But as school choice architects intended, the open market for schools made them act like consumers. They shopped for schools, and in the process, they got invested in their daughter's education and the schools in their community. If there was no school choice system, I never would have toured 10 schools and two charters. Some of them I went back to twice. Um, I learned a lot about my city's public education system. And I became invested. Even the best schools, I think that there's, you you know, things that should be better. Every family brings their own hopes and challenges to choosing a school. Carrie and Eric learned that even when you crunch the data and go on a bunch of tours, there's no clear roadmap for picking the right school. The warm and fuzzy feeling you get from eating a homemade muffin on a tour may pull on your heartstrings, but the data can tell a very different story. And for millions of American parents, like the ones Lakeisha serves, it's even more complicated. For them, school choice isn't the great equalizer. School choice may give all parents a chance at a better school, but choice doesn't mean access. Besides, 
School choice systems often benefit those with the time to visit schools and figure out the system and the resources to live in the right neighborhood, thereby reinforcing the very socioeconomic inequities it was created to curb. Because in the end, every child, no matter where they live or how much their parents earn, deserves a great school, period. This is the last episode of our first season, and we want to thank you so much for your support and your feedback. We're still learning here, and we learn from every one of your letters and comments. And we've got great news. We're headed back into the field to do a second season. We'll be bringing you the very latest on what the science says about cultivating character strengths in kids. And we also want to share stories of real people grappling with these issues. So if you're a parent or an educator and you have a story to tell about forgiveness or honesty, generosity, purpose, love, humility, or gratitude, send us an email at likeasponge at greatschools.org. We're especially interested in collaborating with some high school teachers who teach audiovisual class to include some student stories. Finally, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please, please consider reviewing us on iTunes. It's a great way for others to learn about the show and for us to learn how to improve. Huge thanks to our managing editor, Jessica Kelman, and President Matthew Nelson, who spent his Christmas vacation last year creating our sound studio, and Chris Ferreira, our sound engineer who performs magic on the audio mashup we give him. He's also a wonderful composer. Learn more about his work at greatschools.org slash likeasponge. And huge appreciation to Joni, Carrie, and Eric for sharing your school tour adventures with us. We're wishing you all a smooth transition to big kids school. And to Arlo and Jennifer Lira Ruiz, Lakeisha Young, and Carla Christian, the mom whose extreme school choice paid off. That kindergartner she was talking about is now in graduate school. Thanks also to all the Oakland public schools we visited. You all have our admiration for doing the most important job there is. This episode of Like a Sponge was produced by Carol Lloyd and Charity Ferreira of Great Schools, thanks to the support of the Carnegie Corporation of New York and our managing editor, Jessica Kelman. Sound editing and design by Christopher Ferreira. To learn more about the resources mentioned in this episode, visit us at greatschools.org forward slash like a sponge. Sure,